This is the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Hey Asian Madness listeners, as always, I hope you're all doing very well, staying hydrated and staying safe. So I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was going to change things up a bit and stop talking about women getting murdered, at least for a couple episodes. These cases are very important of course, but there's also other topics out there I would like to explore. So today we will be taking a quick break from our usual murders and we will be looking at an interesting group of people from Japan. I'm sure most of you have heard of the mafia or organized crime groups, especially people like Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, Carlo Gambino, and so on. That's more on the western side, though. What about Asia? What do we have? There's quite a few out there but I would think the ones that come to mind immediately would either be the Chinese triad or the Yakuza from Japan. In this episode, I'm going to dive into the history and talk about the bits and pieces concerning the Yakuza. It's a lot of information, so I'm going to try my best to make it sound more interesting than your average history teacher. You may be wondering why I picked this topic, and honestly, it's kind of embarrassing. If you're into gaming, well, there is this excellent game series called Yakuza. I am positive some of you out there know of this game or play it yourselves, and honestly, this is one of my favorite games of all time. So after playing through these games several times, I began to wonder about the group in real life. The game itself is super cool and teaches you a lot, but ultimately, it's still a game, and of anything, it romanticizes the Yakuza a bit too much. It's definitely something many people know of, but how much do we really know about it? What else do we know besides the fact that they can be violent, have elaborate tattoos, and sometimes chop off their little fingers? Let's find out. Let's start with the word itself. While we commonly know of it as Yakuza, the more official term for it would be Gokdo, where Goku means extreme, and do here means the path or way, as in the extreme way or the extreme path. As for people who work with the law, such as government or police, they prefer to call them boryokudan, which literally just means violence groups. So if gokudo is the more traditional word for it, then how did the word yakuza come about? There's this traditional Japanese card game called Oicho Kabu. I have never really played it, but that's because I suck at card games and I'm a sore loser. The game's purpose is to draw three cards that total up to nine. If the three cards add up to double digits, then you only look at the second digit of both cards. So, for example, 
If the sum of your three cards is 18, then you have 8 points. Sounds simple. And like any card game, there's always the best way to win and the worst way to lose. The worst combination known in this game would be if you drew an 8, 9, and a 3. The total for these numbers add up to 20, and that means you have 0 points. These three numbers, 893, when read in a specific manner, are pronounced yakusa. So in this sense, the worst drawn card combo became the word people used for groups of people that were deemed the worst kind. Not so much in the sense that these people are horrible, but more in the sense that they were unwanted and marginalized. As for the origin of the first Yakuza group, it is not entirely clear, but people are quite certain that the first organization began sometime in the mid-Edo period, aka the Tokugawa period, so around the 17th century. This was also the last time period traditional Japanese government existed in history, where shoguns, or military rulers, ruled everything. Society under the Edo period was very strict and hierarchical. To be more specific, Japanese citizens were assigned into strict social classes based on their statuses. And whatever class you belonged to or were born into, you stayed there. Very little mobility, difficult to move your way up, and your children were also destined to inherit your class. At the top of the list, you had the emperor and all the important government people. Then you had warriors and samurais. The majority of the population fell in the next category, peasants, and beneath them were the artisans, craftsmen, and merchants. This kind of class restriction was probably really unfair to many people, but the government's goal at the time was to stabilize the country and improve its systems. It seemed to be a good idea at the time to put labels on people, and by doing so, it could keep them there so the important government people could focus on what they deemed as more important, such as growing their economy, keeping the peace, and so on. So in such a rigid society, how do these people on the lower tiers of society manage to survive and break through? Just because someone was labeled and born into a lower class, does that mean everyone is going to accept their fate or live honestly in accordance to the rules set out by the government? What if they want to be rich or expand their ways? One can dream, right? Allow me to introduce to you two groups of people who wanted more in life and became the founders of today's Yakuza groups, the Tekia and the Bakuto. Let's start with the Tekia. Tekia generally just means merchants. So nowadays when you see people with food stalls or whatever stands by the side of the road or at a market or at a fair, that would be them. It's very common nowadays, but they were quite looked down upon back then in Japan for whatever reason. So these merchants were selling stuff to people. What's so interesting about that? When you want to make big bucks, you can't just sell normal everyday things like meat buns, takoyaki, and scarves. Sure, that's honest work, but sadly enough, that doesn't give you much in life for the most part. Many of these merchants who were looking to expand eventually began to dabble in illegal and stolen goods, and with illegal activities, they began to draw in the most unwanted people in society, such as fugitives, people with criminal histories, etc. Makes sense, too, because if a criminal is released from prison, 
it's going to be hard for them to find honest work, even if they wanted to. So where else would they go? These groups eventually grew bigger, and when there's a lot of people, there's bound to be conflict and chaos. So what did they do? They developed their own ways of keeping things in order. They created a system that could be described as the father-son system, or the oyabun-kobun system. To put it simply, the fathers, or the oyabun, were the ones on top, and they each had their own quote-unquote family, and those beneath them would be the kobun, or the sons. The sons would also be labeled differently depending on their rank, such as smaller bosses, bigger bosses, or plain followers. It was a good way to keep track of their people, and to ensure some form of order. This was the first version of the present-day Yakuza structure, so it was rather simple and straightforward. But more on that later. The Tekia eventually expanded their services to other illegal activities such as gang-related activities, mostly turf wars and also protection rackets. I like to think of protection rackets as an illegal form of physical insurance. It's where these group of men go to individuals, families, or businesses to demand money, and in return, they will provide them with extra protection when needed. If someone tries to bother you or your family, well, you paid us so we will back you up when needed, especially when you can't really rely on government officials and the police to do their job. Except, you don't really have a choice in this matter. Okay, you can say no to these scary men, but there's no guarantee that they won't trash your place, put a target on you, or worse, harm or kill you. This can be helpful if you are genuinely in need of extra protection, because there are some shady businesses or individuals out there who may not be able to reach out to law enforcement if needed. But on the other hand, it is also easy to take advantage of that. It's also not uncommon for these groups to play both sides, be the threat and be the ones to protect you from said threat. So if one group splits up in half, half of them can go pretend to threaten a shop, and a day later, the other half of the group will show up and be like, Hey, I heard you're having trouble with these guys. How about you pay us and we will help you out? Basically, it's just extortion. This is quite common in other types of criminal organizations as well, so not necessarily unique to the Yakuza. If your shop or business happen to be situated on a certain gang's turf, well, you better pay up. Mandatory fees. Despite being involved in mostly shady and illegal activities, they can also be sometimes employed as legit security for festivals and whatnot. But I wouldn't be surprised if they're riskier and a lot more expensive. Next up, let's look at the second group, the Bakto. These were the gamblers, who were even on a lower tier than the merchants. Technically speaking, gambling is legal, was and still is, with a very few exceptions such as horse betting. The most typical types of gambling involved dice games, oichokabu, which I mentioned earlier, or hanafuda games. Hanafuda itself is not a type of game, but a type of Japanese-style playing cards similar to what we normally use as playing cards, just different in design. They're very colorful and the cards have unique designs on them, such as flowers, different plants, animals, etc. 
So even though gambling was a big no-no back in the 17th century, gamblers were still able to run these gambling dens, and surprisingly, sometimes with the help of the government. Sounds really shady, but it's not uncommon for government entities to sometimes work with underground criminal organizations because the ugly truth is that they both can benefit from it. How does this work? So people that visited these gambling dens were usually from society's working class, because it was a way to have fun with the guys and maybe get lucky and win some money. You definitely won't see rich people in these gambling dens, but they more than likely have their own gambling palaces or whatever. Many times the people that run these gambling dens would win against the working class, and the money they get back is then given back to the government. But of course, the gambling den people get to keep a cut of it. So in a way, they do whatever they can to win, give a portion of the money back to the government, and in exchange, they get to keep doing their so-called illegal activities. Very unfair for the working class, but shady shit has always been in existence and probably will never stop. One very distinct tradition for the Bakto group were their elaborate tattoos on their backs. Like I said, the playing cards they used were called Hanafuda, and they usually had very colorful designs on them. Some of these designs eventually made their way to the backside of these gamblers, and it's basically a signature for this group. This is one of the traditions that continued on to this day from around the 1700s. I'm sure you've seen many depictions of the Yakuza in movies, shows, games, whatever. And most times these men would sport this huge backside tattoo, sometimes beginning from their shoulders and upper arms and extending all the way down to their backside or their legs. The most common designs you might see would involve dragons, which symbolizes strength and power, tigers, which stands for power and perseverance, koi fish, which represents good luck and fortune, as well as strength and perseverance. And the phoenix, which many people probably know, is about rebirth and overcoming struggles and hardships in life. Of course, you can also get designs that are not animal-themed, such as the hanya, which looks like a creepy demon mask, but it represents wisdom. Some others may opt for samurais and Buddhist symbols, cherry blossoms, and other types of flowers. These tattoos almost always have specific meanings behind each one of them. So other than looking pretty badass, they can also kind of tell a story of the person or what the person is like. Another important Yakuza tradition that came from the Bakto is the tradition of chopping off your pinky finger when you have committed a wrong or if you're looking to settle a conflict. As a person who gambles or is part of the organization, there are many ways to get into unwanted trouble, or perhaps commit an offense that's bad, but not quite bad enough for you to get expelled or killed. So how do they make sure that those who refuse to pay their debt or cheat learn their lesson? They chop off their pinkies. It feels kind of random, right? Like, out of all the things you could do to inflict pain and permanent inconvenience, why that? There are a few reasons. It's painful, obviously, but it's not a lasting pain and it won't kill you or anything like that. It doesn't really affect your day-to-day -day life as you still have four major fingers, 
but losing a pinky can be quite damaging if you're wielding a sword. Your grip becomes weaker, so in a sense, you're also more vulnerable and susceptible to losing in fights. So that applied to the olden days, when people still did sword fights. Not so much nowadays. Lastly, it's kind of a reminder to you and others that you've committed a crime against the gamblers at some point, so it may or may not affect how others see you. An important thing to note is that many times, chopping off your pinky is not forced upon you nor does someone else carry out the punishment for you. It's usually up to the offender themselves to make this decision. If you wanted to show remorse or acknowledgement of your wrongdoing, then you have to be proactive and do it yourself. I also see this as being tied to the whole honor thing and taking responsibility for your own actions. Kind of like the whole seppuku deal with samurais. Honor before death. Suicide rather than be killed by the enemy. What's the point if others force this onto you? How is that any different from the court of law punishing you? In a slightly different scenario, we have the whole chopping off your pinky to settle conflicts. In the Oyabun Kobun, or father-son organization, sometimes one of the so-called sons can do something bad, and if it's really bad, it may result in their death. But sometimes, the father figure of the family may also need to take responsibility, as it was their son who committed the offense. In such cases, even if the one responsible dies, the father may still need to chop off their pinky as a way to acknowledge their family's wrongdoing and take responsibility. It's complex, and every situation can be different. So these are just examples as to how things can go. Next up, let's talk a bit more about the organization and structure within the Yakuza groups. I mentioned briefly that it's basically a father-son organization. And yes, it's a very male-dominated structure. The organization started out quite simple, but it did end up evolving into a more complex one, as we will see later. This is the general gist of the Yakuza model. The Oyabun, aka the patriarch or the father, sits on top. This is the key person in the entire organization, as all loyalty is sworn upwards. Under the main boss, we have a first and second lieutenant and a chief of staff who mostly deals with administration tasks. Beneath the lieutenants, there are big brothers and little brothers, depending on importance and ranking. If you do a bit of research, there are multiple terms and labels for these people within the Yakuza, and it can get quite confusing, so I'm just going to simplify it. Basically, the patriarch is the leader. Under them are important people who will report directly to him. Although it's supposedly one big family, it is common nowadays to have multiple other smaller families within the main family. For example, the big boss is Asan, but under his umbrella, there are five other smaller families, and each family basically does the same thing and they all report upwards. It's really no different from a large company where you have the CEO, and then you have different directors for each business sector. And underneath each sector, there are managers, deputy managers, employees, and part-timers. Everyone in leadership roles has a say in making decisions. But ultimately, the decision has to reflect 
the family slash company values and adhere to family slash company policies that are laid out by the big boss. Big decisions need to be reported upwards and require permission. Biggest difference, I would say, is swearing absolute loyalty. Let's be real. How many of us who work in large corporations really care about how the big guys are doing or whether or not we are loyal to the company? If we want to quit, we can quit and nothing bad really happens to us. Although leaving the Yakuza is not impossible, it is rather hard and less common. It's also a risk members will have to take because it can reflect badly on them, whether in the Yakuza or for their own future endeavors. Living life and adjusting to life as a common civilian can be quite a struggle. Now I would like to mention a few important members in the whole Yakuza world and the groups you need to know when it comes to the Yakuza. Let's take a look at Yamamoto Chogoro, aka Shimizu Jirocho. He is deemed as a folk hero and pretty legendary, which means a lot of information regarding him might be slightly exaggerated. He was born in the year 1820, died in 1893, so you could say he lived a pretty long life. His early years were mostly spent living in unstable conditions. He was given up at birth, adopted by his uncle who worked as a rice merchant. He was poor, ran away from home, became a gambler, and later on went on to become one of the most important Yakuza bosses at the time. He was a rather complex character as he not only had his own business, was a philanthropist, but he also fought and gambled on the side. This just shows how complex a person can be. He was no stranger to murder either, and his ambitions eventually led him to build up his own Yakuza family and have a lot of influence, even within the government. I haven't been able to fact check this, but there are supposedly more than 100 movies made about his life, which only goes to show how major his contributions to society were, despite the fact that he was a career criminal. Another important person to know about would be Yamaguchi Harukichi, the founder of the present day largest and most powerful group in Japan, the Yamaguchi Group. The group was founded in the year 1915 in Kobe City, mostly involving dock workers and labor unions, so that means they have been active for more than 100 years. Harukichi was the patriarch for about 10 years, and then the reins were handed over to his son, Noboru, in the year 1925. Although Yamaguchi Harukichi created the group, he isn't really seen as the most important character in the history of this group. The person who really shaped up the group and made it powerful would be Taoka Kazuo, the godfather of the Yakuza. So, who is he and what did he do that was so great? Kazuo was born in 1913 and was orphaned basically at birth. Clearly, he had a difficult childhood, but things changed for him when Yamaguchi Noboru, the second patriarch of the Yamaguchi group, took him under his wing. This pretty much was an initiation into gang life. He was quite fearless, smart, and ambitious, which only ended up helping him climb the criminal gang ladder, and by the time he was 33, he became the third patriarch of the Yamaguchi group. Bear in mind, though, the group was small at the time, probably less than 100 members, and not very sophisticated. 
But once he took over, he made many changes which ended up benefiting the group in general. First off, he encouraged members to not just rely on illegal activities, but also go out and establish real businesses. This was a new concept, for sure. Then he allowed his quote-unquote sons to start families of their own, which would be known as subsidiaries of the Yamaguchi group. But for all this, there wasn't exactly a need to set up an extended structure, because there weren't that many members. But once members started to grow, he created a better system to accommodate more members, giving them more freedom to expand. There was the patriarch, then there were the lieutenants, then there were various other underbosses and families beneath them. Taoka Kazuo also went on to forge alliances with other Yakuza groups, which of course is a plus as you have extra support and one less enemy to worry about. At the height of the Yamaguchi group, there was said to have been around 10,000 members total. Taoka narrowly escaped death in the year 1978 when an assassination attempt was made on his life in a disco. I guess it's a good choice since people are usually drunk, having fun, and have their guard down. He was shot in the neck but managed to live for a few more years, where he eventually died from a heart attack in the year 1981. This guy is greatly respected in the group, as he single-handedly managed to take a small dock harbor street gang and transformed it into the largest Yakuza group in all of Japan, which still stands to this day. As of recent, there are roughly 20 Yakuza groups active in Japan, but we don't really need to know who they all are. Here are the ones you should know about. The largest group you've already heard about, the Yamaguchi group. Their current member count is quite inconsistent to say the least. Some websites state less than 10,000, some say 20,000, but I guess it doesn't really make a big difference as long as you know that they are the largest group around. Not only are they the largest group, they are also said to be one of the wealthiest criminal organizations around the world. They dabble in all sorts of things, legal and illegal, including gambling, construction schemes, arms dealing, human and drug trafficking, real estate, sex work, which also includes the famous world of Japanese porn. The Yamaguchi group faced a huge change in 2015, where a few thousand of its members broke away from the main group. The new group was referred to as the Kobe Yamaguchi group. Not that unique from its original name. They're obviously not as large as the main group, and while things worked out for them for a few years, a lot of the members ultimately decided to head back to their mother Yakuza group in 2021, which helped to grow the OG Yamaguchi group numbers again. The second largest group would be the Sumiyoshi group, with approximately 4,200 members. This group was founded in the year 1958, and although they're pretty similar to the Yamaguchi group, their structure seems to be a lot looser in comparison. The third largest group would be the Inagawa group. They were founded in the year 1949 in Shizuoka Prefecture, and its members mostly originated from the Bakuto group, aka the Gamblers. Their current area of operation is mostly around the Kanto and Yokohama area. The fourth largest group would be the faction we mentioned earlier, the Kobe Yamaguchi group, 
that broke away from the original one. I mentioned that some of the members chose to return to the original one in 2021, but that still leaves a lot of members behind. Because, you know, loyalty and whatever. So a good question would be, how does one join the Yakuza? In Italian mafias, they do this ritual where the one joining the group would prick their finger, rub some blood on a picture of a saint, recite an oath, then burn the picture. The Yakuza initiation ritual is not so different. The patriarch and the guy looking to join would sit on opposite ends of a table. Each would have a sake cup in front of them. The patriarch's cup would be filled entirely, while the initiate's cup would only be filled slightly. This is a clear way to show status, as in the patriarch is way above the initiate. Once they take a drink from their own cup, they then take the other person's cup and drink from it. And that's it. The ritual is then completed, where a bond is formed between the patriarch and his new son. It's a lot less painful and dramatic than the mafia for sure, but in essence, it's the same idea. These criminal organizations are all about bonds, about family, about brotherhood, and about a sense of belonging. Many people who join the Yakuza have had tough upbringings, as you may have already noticed, and by joining a group, they can get a sense of what it's like to have a family where you go all out to protect someone at all costs. I can definitely see why this could draw people in. If I lacked a sense of belonging and had no family to rely on, it would seem like a good choice to form new bonds with people, even if they're not related to you by blood. I've mentioned this earlier, but the Yakuza are very into the idea of loyalty, respect, and brotherhood. It's very Japanese and traditional, so that should not be surprising. Aside from that, though, what are some general codes that these members live by? What makes them different from your average thug? For one, the organization is very structured, and respect and loyalty is a must. Everyone is expected to treat their patriarch or bosses with the utmost respect, and any sign of disobedience can bring trouble. Aside from respecting your elders, you also have to show loyalty to anyone within the group, regardless of ranking. That means not creating drama within the group, and any attempt to get with a woman that quote-unquote belongs to another member is strictly forbidden. That is a sign of betrayal, and I'm sure I don't have to explain why. Hopefully, you wouldn't try to sleep with your friend's significant other, because that's weird. So... In that way, you and the Yakuza are basically on the same page. You're basically a Yakuza. The next one is a bit interesting to me. While drinking is encouraged and seen as a form of bonding within the group, drugs, on the other hand, are a hard no. Okay, it may depend on the Yakuza group, but generally speaking, it is not encouraged as it's a trickier situation and more of a hassle. I suppose this is one thing that makes the Yakuza different from other international criminal groups. One more code I found extra interesting is the fact that members are not allowed to target regular civilians. Obviously, when an individual criminal acts, they usually target innocent civilians because they're more vulnerable, but not in this case. You could say that the Yakuza have a philanthropic side to them, 
where they target those in their field or rich businesses or similar entities and prefer to leave civilians alone. You could also say that as a large organization, they don't really find it useful or important to target civilians because it's just a petty crime. Not only is it not honorable, it is also rather pointless. The Yakuza have been known to give back to society in difficult times. For example, after the Kobe earthquake in 1995 and the Tohoku earthquake in 2011, they were one of the first ones to arrive at the cities with food and aid. That's something I never really expected. So it's clear that although they are labeled as a criminal organization, they're more than just a band of criminals. So these Yakuza groups are considered illegitimate groups, but the line can be blurred due to some legitimate work that they do and the kind of assistance they have provided for the country during hard times, like I mentioned earlier. Many Yakuza groups are recognized organizations in Japan, so belonging to the group is not against the law or anything. It's not uncommon for higher tier Yakuza members to be involved in the government or have ties to the government. Especially the right wing party. Sometimes both sides can reach an agreement, and in return, both sides benefit from said agreement, as long as it's not too obvious, I guess. There can also be tricky situations where police or the government have a rather difficult time getting involved in, and this is where the Yakuza comes in. For example, they can be called upon to settle and collect debts, or chase out renters due to lack of payment. The police and government can't be really seen out there threatening common civilians as it would reflect very badly on them. But if criminals do it, what can you do? Not like they have an upstanding reputation to begin with. In other words, the Yakuza can be seen as doing the dirty work for the government. Despite being useful at times, Yakuza members have been on the decline these recent years. There are a few reasons, but there is a major one. Lawmakers began passing new laws starting from the 1990s that restrict and fight back against the Yakuza, such as the Organized Crime Countermeasure Law and the Act of Prevention of Unlawful Activities by Criminal Gang Members. These sort of laws basically downgraded the Yakuza group from ambiguous organized groups to simple violent gangs. If they're simply viewed as dangerous violent gangs, It becomes easier for law enforcement to crack down on them and arrest them. It's pretty much just a change in name, but it really affects the outcome. In 2007, the Transfer of Criminal Proceeds Prevention Law was passed, which was aimed at financial crimes, so that was another huge bust for the members in the Yakuza. Despite some of them running legitimate businesses, the money may not be very clean. Many prefectures have also enacted anti Yakuza ordinances, which leaves the members in an even more vulnerable position. This has led to the arrest of many members and leaders, which kind of made it less appealing for newcomers to want to join, and also forced many existing members to leave the organization. Why would you want to stay and risk your life anymore? In theory, cracking down on criminal organizations should be a good thing, right? But not all good intentions lead to good outcomes. For example, for those who do leave the Yakuza, what are their choices? Sure, some might consider changing their ways and decide to lead an honest life, but what if they are so used to their old ways? This kind of change can be very drastic, 
Since being a Yakuza member is not only a job, it's basically your entire lifestyle. That's hard to change. So a new criminal organization was born from that, a group that is quite the opposite of the Yakuza. They are known as the Hangure, or the Half Greys. They lack the honor code that was once the backbone of the Yakuza, which in turn actually makes them even more dangerous. They can do as they wish, and you may think, well, that is still illegal, so they can still be arrested and charged, right? True, but at the same time, it is no longer a group thing. It's more of an individual matter. They are also not targeted by the previous law set forth to eradicate the Yakuza, because it's sort of a weird loophole. They are not an organized crime group or a criminal gang. They're just individuals who might choose to work together. So while these new laws have stopped the growth of the Yakuza, it has also created new problems. So what are some ways you can learn more about the Yakuza via the media or pop culture? A recent one would be the show streaming on HBO Max called Tokyo Vice, but this one kind of has a Western angle to it since it's HBO and seen through the experience of an American reporter. Movie-wise, a lot of the famous ones I found online are quite old, so if that's your thing, go for it. There's Branded to Kill, Pill Flower, Tokyo Drifter, and Why Don't You Play in Hell. There's one that I watched and liked, but not entirely Yakuza content, would be Ichi the Killer. But it's quite graphic, so might not be everyone's cup of tea. There are also multiple Japanese dramas that depict the Yakuza. Some more borderline, some goofy, and some quite serious. One that I remember watching back in high school would be Goksen, which is about a teacher who's silly, kind, invested in her students, but her students make fun of her and pick on her. But the twist is that she's a descendant of a powerful Yakuza family and is actually very skilled when it comes to martial arts and helping those in need. It's a fun watch. Another classic drama slash manga is called Great Teacher Onizuka. The background story is quite similar to Goksen, except the teacher is a man, not a woman. He's tough, he's not like other teachers, but he does what he can to protect and teach his students. Game-wise, obviously I am going to recommend my favorite game, Yakuza. This game is excellent. It's hilarious, it's serious, it has badass fighting, and the storyline is excellent. If you have time to kill, look it up and trust me, it'll take up a lot of your time. The Yakuza game series start from 0 to 7, so that's 8 games. There's also a couple other spin-offs that are just as good, so if you're a fan or if you're interested, feel free to talk to me about it because I'm a diehard fan. So there you have it, a basic intro to the international criminal group in Japan, the Yakuza. Not gonna lie, the whole Yakuza thing is probably overly romanticized, similar to that of the Italian Mafia. Many people see them as a very respectful gang with strict moral compasses. While that could be true, they are also known to be involved in very shady activities. Extortion, human and dangerous arms trafficking, money laundering, you name it. This is why I strongly believe that the Yakuza is not entirely black or white. Kind of like many things in life. 
They can do good, but they can also do wrong. I'd say most of us are common civilians, so it's hard for us to know the entire ins and outs of the organization. We can only come to our own conclusion. It's also important to note that even if the Yakuza-esque tattoos are very pretty and badass, tattoos in general have become a sign of ties to criminal organizations in Japan. This is why most, if not all, bathhouses in Japan ban people with tattoos from entering. I get it though, they want to avoid potential trouble and hassle. Whether or not this sentiment will change, we will have to wait and see. As the number of members continue to decline, what will the future for them look like? I hope you guys found this subject interesting, because it's been something I've been wanting to talk about for quite a while. Thank you so much for tuning in. Remember, be safe, make smart choices in life, and till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.